Hello and welcome back to the extras. Lachlan here this week, joined by Peter. Hello. Thanks for being with us, Peter. Uh, we're continuing on in the gospel according to Matthew this week. We've had a few weeks in here watching Jesus on his way towards Jerusalem, uh, kind of turning things on their head, really, or turning things right side up. Well, give us a little rundown, Peter, of where we're at this week, Matthew, the second half of Matthew 20. That's right. So, uh, you know, as as we are in this series, you may uh, not have had this passage on the most recent Sunday in your congregation, but the one we're talking about is at the end of Matthew 20, uh, where Jesus uh, explains to his disciples again that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to die there, that he's going to be crucified, that he'll be raised to life again. And then his disciples take this as an opportunity, having just heard this, to try to do a little bit of uh, power play, a little bit of wrangling for position. And Jesus explains to them that's not really what he's on about, that he, the Son of Man, came not to be served you know, on the top of the pile, but actually to serve. Uh, and that means that for his people, they need to, if they want to be first, well, like Jesus, they need to become last in mm. service of others. Mm. It's wonderful. And we got to hear a little bit about you as well, Peter, in this sermon. You're a history nerd. I can't, uh, I can't remember how you admitted to being a nerd, Lachlan. No Did you find sufficient other history nerds amongst our church? We At least three or four out of the 1,000 or something. Yeah. <laughs> Good that you've got some others you can bond with there. Right people. I've got to confess I am not a history... All right, no. I think it took me some years to, to warm to history. Certainly high school, not my thing. Avoided it like the plague, uh, which I didn't know anything about because I didn't know history. What's the plague? But anyway... We're going to get into Matthew 20 and uh, see where that can lead us. Maybe some other history might come up. You encouraged us uh, in Matthew 20. It helped us to see, I guess, the structure that's there, that we're comparing a couple of pairs, comparing the pair of pairs. And the first pair that we meet in Matthew 20 are the pair of Zebedee's sons, whose mom turns up to ask Jesus uh, to give them that power, that glory, the, the second and third position in Jesus' kingdom. Mm. Now, someone's asked, uh, why is the mum doing the asking? You know, these are two grown men. Why aren't they asking for themselves? Are they being wimps, getting mum to do their dirty work? Like they haven't grown up yet, and so mum needs to ask for their things for them. Is there something cultural in this that we need to, that would help us understand it? Talk to us about, uh, yeah, Zebedee's son's mum doing the asking. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, it's not... Not too much is made of it here, I think. Matthew doesn't want to particularly make that much of, of the fact that it's the mother and not them. I don't think they're supposed to be um, being shown to be kind of weak or irresponsible or, um, you know, little big babies or something like that. Uh, there's a little bit of a trope in the Bible. Like sometimes women can come and say things and mm. ask things um, in a way that's like a bit more direct or a bit more brash um, than a man can. Something about the way that um, male-female dynamics work. Mm. It's a bit of a trope kind of throughout the Bible. Sometimes women can ask for can ask for stuff in a, in a pretty bold and frank way. Mm. So it's, it's probably connects to that kind okay. of thread running through the Bible. Um, perhaps, 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 um, Matthew wants to make sure that uh, we we know it was the, the, the mum because he has another mum coming and making a request in chapter 15. Um, the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, which is actually also what the men, the blind men ask in mm. chapter 20. So it may be that he wants us um, to sort of contrast this mum's request for her boys with this other mum's request 
for her girl, which is about mercy and about uh, mm. healing from Jesus. Mm. Um, possible. Uh, I don't think that, that Matthew wants to make too, too much out of it, but that's perhaps yeah. what he is making. Okay. Interesting thoughts. Thank you. So there's our first pair. Now, you mentioned the second pair, this pair of blind men that come up in the second uh, chunk of Matthew 20. Um, yeah, they're blind. They're crying out for Jesus to have mercy. Someone's asked, surely Jesus knew what they would want. Why has he asked them, what do you want? Mm. Are we assuming wrongly that he knew? What, yeah, what's going on with his question? Sure. Well, uh, Jesus asks a bunch of questions in the gospel, doesn't he? And uh, the gospels is, are pretty clear, um, Luke especially, that Jesus is somebody who, who knows secrets of people's hearts. Mm. He knows what's going on in hearts. Mm. He doesn't need people to say. Uh, however, we've observed repeatedly through Matthew that, I mean, no encounter with Jesus is, is a straightforward mm. one. Um, he loves to give you the question that questions the question. Um, he doesn't just give you a straight answer. And so he, he asks them this question, um, and it, it, what that does is creates an opportunity to find out about their desires. Uh, so Jesus gives them the chance to say to him what they want. And so we're learning about them, uh, like we learned about the, the rich young man when um, Jesus answers his questions in a far less than straightforward answer mm. uh, way. Um, so I would say this is what encounters with Jesus are like. Yeah, he doesn't, okay. um, you know, there's nothing straightforward about about meeting Jesus. You'll find strange things exposed when you encounter him. Mm. Um, the other perhaps slightly more prosaic thing to say is just it, it creates the contrast. It, yeah. This is what helps to create the pair of pairs. Yeah, that's right. um, Jesus says something the same to both of them, and it helps us to see the similarity mm. between both of these incidents. A pair approaches Jesus. He says, what can I do for you? And their answer and the difference between the two mm. answers, uh, the two requests they make, um, is the point of what we need to understand about following Jesus here. Mm. Mm. And just to uh, draw that conclusion out for those who might have forgotten or didn't hear the sermon, um, you're encouraging us that, you know, the second pair, this pair of blind men, they're the ones that we're encouraged to be like the mercy seekers rather than the glory seekers. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. So you know they want mercy uh, from Jesus, and then they follow him. Uh, these other guys want status, they want position, mm. and I think the point clearly is you know <laughs> be like the two blind men, not like the two yeah. sons of Zebedee. All right, well, that's helped to kind of answer a couple of questions on the broad theme and the structure of this passage and the point that we're bringing from it. There are a few more specific questions on the encounter with the sons of Zebedee, their request, how that all unfolded. So we'll press into some of the details there. Within that interaction, you know, so the mother asks for her sons to get position two and three in the kingdom. Jesus responds with what, as you say, it's a surprising encounter. It's an odd encounter. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Mm. They say yes. Mm. And someone's wondered, you know, what, what if they'd said no to that? Jesus seems to gloss over there, yes. Uh, this person would have expected Jesus to pull them up on that, yes. You know, maybe, do they even understand what he's asking at this point? Mm. What's going on in that little encounter of the cup and the disciples' answer? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the things that we are learning through comparing the pair, um, one pair drew out, um, physically blind, but then their their sight is restored and they follow Jesus, Um 
the other pair, the sons of Zebedee, physically they can see just fine. But through the contrast, we're really learning they are spiritually blind. Mm. They're blind to the fact that Jesus is the servant king, the son of man, who came not to be served but to serve. And uh, I think we can attribute their um, confidence, yes, we can, uh, in some way to this blindness. Mm. They don't really know what it means for Jesus to drink the cup. Mm. Now, what did they think they were saying yes to? We can only really speculate. Mm. Possibly they think um, that in Jerusalem they're going to, you know, um, they're going to go and kind of mix it up with the Romans. It's going to be a bit of a scuffle up there mm. as Jesus comes into his kingdom mm. and ends up kind of ruling a theocratic nation state from Jerusalem as his mm. throne. Um, are you guys up for the fight? That's where mm. I'm going. Yeah, mm. we're up for it. Mm. We can do it. Make us number two and three. Mm. Maybe. That's yeah. a guess. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, I think at a deeper level, the answer, and, and the passage shows us this, the answer to that question, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, is both yes and no. Mm. So can you drink the cup? No, obviously not. It's the Son of Man who can give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and nobody else can do what Jesus is going to do. Jesus' death is unique. So just to clarify that for those who might not see the logic straight away, the, the cup that is being referred to here, we're linking to Jesus' death, kind of an Old Testament image of the cup of God's wrath. That's come right. Back up in Gethsemane when Jesus is praying. Absolutely. And he's been talking, speaking to that issue very directly uh, a couple of verses earlier mm. as he says that he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then a couple of verses later, he says he's going to give his life as a ransom mm. for many. So, mm. yes, the cup is his death, and his death is a unique one. It's a death yeah. as a ransom for yeah. sins, and nobody else can drink that cup. At the same time, Jesus says to them, yes, you will indeed drink from my mm. cup. And this connects to a thread that runs through Matthew's gospel, that Jesus' death is both unique and something for his disciples to pattern their lives on. Mm. So it's both completely inimitable, can't be imitated, and it's a pattern for imitation. It's mm. uh, take up your cross and yeah, follow me. Yeah. Now, can you die on a cross like Jesus? No. Can you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Jesus says, yes, you must. Mm. And they, as far as church history tells us, they did, didn't they, these guys? I can't remember exactly the means of their death on behalf of Jesus. Yeah, you've got me. I'm not that much of a history. <laughs> but, you know, we, we do know that these early disciples of Jesus all suffered tremendously uh, after his resurrection for claiming that he had risen from the dead. Uh, this did go on to be the pattern of their life. Um, not in substitution for us and for our sins, but following his example of suffering. So they, they did drink, but not in the same way. Yeah, and it's actually the same thing, I think, as, as, as Paul means when he makes that sort of quite disturbing and cryptic statement, I fill up in my body what's lacking mm. in the afflictions of mm. Christ. Now, what's mm. lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Nothing. It's one mm. sufficient death for sin. But to he suffers for the ministry yeah. of the gospel, so that yeah. good news about Jesus unique sacrifice uh, he suffers so that word can yeah. go out to everybody and i think that's what jesus means yeah nice helpful thank you now we'll stick in verse 23 there which is where jesus was answering these disciples because someone's asked jesus goes on to say i can't it's not it's not for me to grant who sits at my right and my left these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father what does jesus mean are there some people that are going to sit at his left and his right that God's prepared those places for? Is that the Holy Spirit that's going to be sitting there? 
who's who's God prepared those places for? Yeah, it's a great question, and this was something um, that I uh, that I really learned for the first time as I looked at the passage this time around. I had read this before, but not understood. I sort of I, I started, I guess, wondering what does he mean, Moses and Elijah? These are kind of mm. two significant figures who've popped up in the gospel. They're pretty glorious. Mm. Are those mm. the ones? Um, no, I think is the answer. Um, I think that we actually find the answer in Matthew chapter 27, verse okay. 38, okay. as to who those places at the right and the left are reserved for by the Father. It says, two rebels were crucified with him, mm. one on his right mm. and one on his left. So those places, those places of honour at the right and the left mm. are reserved for crucified criminals. Mm. Which really speaks to, you know, the, the, the sons, they think King Jesus will rule in glory and power and honour and the right and his left means sharing in mm. glory and honour mm. and power. Mm. But Jesus is going to the cross. So that's mm. actually what the Father has prepared for him. And the places mm. the Father has prepared are right and left are the the criminals, mm. the sinners, the wicked, guilty ones with whom he will be mm. crucified. Um, and it speaks to what kind of a king Jesus is, what kind of a victory he's going to win, and what it means to be uh, associated with him, uh, to be a part of his kingdom, I think. Okay. I have not heard that before, Peter. Thank you. That's That gives me something to ponder. I will take that and uh, see, what I, see what to do. That's helpful. Um, now we can move to a couple of questions of, well, okay. I thought we were getting into some implication. This next one's kind of implication, but a bit more just theology that flows from this passage. Uh, we landed in verse 28 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You did a great job explaining for us what that ransom language was. It was a very common language in first century Rome. You know, you might owe a debt and that has your last bit of collateral. You can't pay it back. So you become a slave. You insure that debt and you become property. And the ransom is the price paid to free you back from slavery into freedom. So that was a fairly common and known cycle in the Roman world. Jesus saying he paid the ransom for us as sinners, who did he pay it to? Did he pay that to God? Did he pay that to Satan? Are we taking the analogy too far in thinking about someone receiving this ransom? What's going on? Yeah, it's a it's a brilliant question. Uh, it's a, it's exactly the right kind of question to ask. So we when we read the Bible, we want to be, uh, especially at, at, at clearly very theologically significant parts like Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 are to give his life as a ransom for many. That's expressing um, what we might say uh, the intent of the atonement. Like what, mm. what, is, what is the death of Jesus about? Jesus died, but how do we interpret that? What's it yeah. for? How should we yeah. understand uh, the, de the death of Jesus? And when theologians talk about that, they're talking about the doctrine of atonement. Now to, form a biblical doctrine of atonement, we need to understand the implications of the words that the Bible uses to explain mm. the atonement, mm. to explain the meaning of the death of Jesus. And the word used here is ransom. And so we've dug a bit into what 
would Jesus and uh, his first hearers and the readers of Matthew's gospel have understood by the word ransom? And mm. I've suggested that they had something quite specific and concrete in mind, something in their world that happened, mm. uh, if not every day, it was a commonplace occurrence, mm. the, uh, the freeing of a slave. Mm. Now, the, the uh, generations that followed those first Christians, uh, were uh, they wanted to do this work to understand what did the death of Jesus mean? What did it achieve when Jesus mm. died on the cross? What does it mean that Jesus died for sins? And so they probed and tested the language of ransom, the concept of ransom that it points to, uh, to try to figure out, well, okay, in what sense, if Jesus' ransom, a death is a ransom, in what sense is it a ransom? And uh, we can think of this as a as kind of theological experimentation, I guess. Uh, people um, trying to work out, okay, so in a ransom, somebody gets paid, who gets paid? And one of the uh, one of the kind of, I suppose, theories you might say that the or experiments, um, thoughts offered by the uh, the apostolic uh, fathers or uh, by those who followed uh, the apostles in the subsequent generations was that the ransom had been paid to the devil. The mm. devil had some kind mm. of legitimate claim um, that he's sort of he's the he's the prison keeper mm. for sinners, mm. and so you pay him, and then the the sinners can go free. Mm. And there's other kinds of uh, versions of this. One is that um, uh, Jesus. Uh, is a kind of a kind of a ruse. He he uh, he appears in flesh, and the devil says, "Aha! This is a this is a human being. This is one of mine," and grabs him. But then it's like when a fish bites on a piece of bait with mm. a fish hook inside mm. it, mm. and uh, Jesus' divinity is concealed within his humanity, and the the devil's power is broken because he's mistakenly mm. um, ensnared the Son of God. So these are some of their theological mm, experiments mm. as people try to understand mm. what does it mean. Uh, these are now really regarded as as dead ends, as unsuccessful experiments. This idea that the ransom is paid to the devil, and the real reason really is that they make out the devil to be a kind of a second god, mm. God's opposite number, yeah. with his own kind of rightful power and dominion, who uh, needs to be kind of. Uh, paid off in some way. He has his own. Um, he has his own rights. Yeah. Um, but that's just not the biblical picture. That sort of dualist picture of good mm, and evil mm, as kind of mm. counterweights. No, there's the there's the good God, and then there are um, whatever forces there are in disordered rebellion against Him. Yeah. Um, that's all they can ever be. Uh, so, not to the devil is uh, the kind of conclusion of church history as Christians have thought and wrestled and tried to understand and then thought again a bit harder. Mm. Uh, so who is the ransom paid to? I think in a sense, uh, we can identify the, the, the limits of the analogy at this point. I think that the weight in the ransom imagery uh, falls on the idea of the payment of a price, um, a costly exchange, a giving up of something. Uh, and Jesus says that he gives up his life and the related idea that that costly exchange that giving up affects a release mm. uh, setting free and i think that that's actually where the uh, the weight of the ransom image is supposed to fall and the question okay but to whom is not uh is actually beginning to push it yeah. too far yeah 
Now, I think we can answer that question in a sense. In a sense, we'd say the ransom is paid to God. I think, actually, that ultimately ends up being the same thing as saying that God um, forgives the debt, mm. as in the, 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 mm. the, the, the parable of the, mm. of the, um, the unforgiving servant, where the master um, simply cancels a huge debt. Um, we could say that God pays the ransom to God, and this is what it means for God to yeah. remit the debt. Um, but, like I said, I think the weight, the, 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 the sharp point of the ransom image uh, is not to whom, but at what price mm. and securing what result. Mm. Uh, the price of Jesus' life, securing freedom of those who previously were uh, bound over to death because of their sin. Thanks, Peter. There's lots that's really helpful in that. Uh, And there's a bunch of other places where this image of ransom comes up in the Bible and my head's pinging with all of them as you speak. Uh, Particularly, I think of Peter, not you, Peter, but the Apostle Peter, where he speaks of us being redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Son of God. Uh, There's the, the costly price on view there. I think of Paul in Romans and the language that he has of our slavery, that's slavery to sin from which we're freed and kind of sin being personified rather than Satan as this power that, you know, needs compensation Mm. for us. So a bunch of places there where the slavery freedom image, even going right back to the Exodus where that whole image, I guess, gets its uh, genesis and its first picture is Israel saved from slavery, freed to serve God again, at the cost of the Passover lamb. Mm. A bunch of different places where that language and imagery carries through the biblical narrative. Uh, Really wonderful to think through and wonderful to just remember how good it is to be freed by Jesus. Uh, We don't deserve that at all. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, this is not just theoretical, theological, intellectual stuff. This is the stuff of great joy. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Great gratitude. Last question then, Peter. Um, We're talking about slavery here and I guess the implication or one of the implications from this passage was that we, like Jesus, would become servants, to become slaves. Some of the New Testament, right? Paul will speak of himself as a slave to Christ. How do we deal with that language as Christians when we've got all of the history behind us of humans being treated horribly? as slaves. Uh, We don't want to glorify the language of slavery. We don't want to degrade people ourselves. We don't encourage slavery. What are we meant to do with the language of slavery Mm. in our Christian walk? Well, I think probably at first it's helpful to recognize that um, Jesus is being deliberately provocative by picking out this word slave. Uh, It is kind of a dirty word, um, the idea of becoming a slave, uh, a frightful and an awful thing. And I think Jesus picked it out deliberately to be uh, a bit offensive, to show how countercultural mm. the values of the kingdom are. Mm. Is he glorifying being a slave? Well, I mean, is he, is he glorifying self-mutilation when he talks about plucking out your own eye um, or you know, cutting off your right mm. hand? I don't think so. I think he's deliberately choosing graphic, uh, even disturbing imagery, mm. uh, not to glorify self-mutilation or enslavement, 
which are dreadful things, mm. but actually to um, give his words the kind of force that they have to have um, to understand what the kingdom of God is like and what its mm. values are like. So I think that's probably important to say, is, so, Je- is Jesus glorifying slavery? Are we glorifying slavery? I don't think so. Mm. Um on the broader question of slavery, it's a, it's a very uh, involved one. You know, the biblical picture of slavery and the relationship between Christianity and slavery throughout history. Um, worth saying, I think that the, the, the biblical writers um, basically take slavery as a, as a given in their world. Um, and we talked about just how widespread the practice of slavery was. That the, you know, the Roman kind of economic model was really predicated on mm. slavery, um, and so it was it was a deeply entrenched systemic feature of that world. Uh, and the Bible writers largely take it for granted. Um, they are a, a tiny, scattered handful of um, downtrodden communities with virtually zero social or political power. Mm. Um, but very importantly, within the scattered handful of communities the gospel begins to cause the kind of revolution uh, in the way that people think about things like slavery that does eventually lead to at different times that uh, whole way of doing things being challenged and even overthrown Mm, mm. so you see paul saying that you know with the gospel there's neither slave nor free. Mm. Um, the, the gospel somehow cuts clean across yeah. that kind of economic and social division and renders it totally meaningless. The instructions given to slaves uh, and to free people um, really drastically relativize both of those mm. statuses. Um, masters, be careful with your slaves. You better remember that you have a master in heaven. Mm. You're a slave to him. So be careful about the way you treat them. Slaves... Uh, please your masters, but remember that your real master is the Lord Jesus. Mm, mm. When Paul writes uh, to Philemon about the direct issue of um, a runaway and returning slave, um, he hints none too subtly, you know, receive him back um, not as a slave but as a brother. Mm. And uh, I think that there's a very strong implication that the, the right thing to do with a brother is to release him from mm, slavery mm, and that, that's what the gospel mm. does so um christianity um people who claim christian faith have of course been um complicit in perpetuating slavery and have used the bible to do it this is a wretched and awful mm, thing mm. um my i would say that they have abused the bible rather than rightly used it and i think the people who have, have rightly uh, rightly read jesus and understood him, who've rightly read Paul and understood him, uh, have been people like um, the English reformers of the 19th century who drew on um, the Bible for the abolition of slavery. So um, all of that, something of a sidetrack, but to say that uh, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery and Mm. even when it uses the language of slave, the language of its time, um, Mm. it's not doing so in such a way as to reinforce that institution. but I, I wonder what you think about this, Lachlan. You talked about you. You mentioned that Paul talks about being a slave of Christ. Mm, mm. Is it a degrading thing to be a slave of Christ? What do you think? Uh, well, degrading, no, because he's a good and loving master, and he's on a good purpose. And so we actually get caught up in serving the the one who is worthy of all glory and power, and we get to kind of participate in that. 
and alongside that, you know, it's it's one uh, vision, one image of our relationship with Christ that conveys something of our connection there. But alongside that, we are his brothers. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We're united with him. Uh, so, you know, it's not saying everything that there is to say about our connection with Christ. But it's an image I find helpful in my daily walk. I think of uh, Paul in Corinthians reminding us that we're not our own. We've been bought at a price. So we should honour God with our bodies. Uh, I think of Paul's language in the start of the letter to the Romans, um, a verse that's been very helpful for my direction in life and decisions I make, that as a slave of Christ, his whole life is for the sake of Jesus' name, for his reputation, for his glory. That's his purpose, is not to seek something for himself, but for his master. And so it's an image that I have found quite helpful in my daily walk to remember uh, in the decisions I make, they're not just impacting me and they're not just for me, but they are for my master, Jesus, who is such a worthy and kind and loving master. And as the uh, prayer book, in the prayer book, I'm pretty sure you can confirm this one for me, Peter, uh, to serve Jesus is perfect freedom. Uh, he, that, that is the kind of master that he is. Uh, he invites us to come if we are feeling heavy and burdened and to enter into his service, which is light and liberating uh, so, no, I wouldn't use the word degrading in thinking of myself as a servant of Christ, but wonderful, liberating, um, meaningful, and uh, really helpful for daily decision-making. Uh, what do you think? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we talked a bit about um, slavery as kind of the turning from a person into a piece of property mm. um, in the Roman world, and legally that was the case. Um, I think there's, I think we can see as we as we read through scripture when uh, human beings uh, embark on this project of self-rule uh, and become enslaved to sin uh, enslaved to satan um, this actually is a uh, this is what dehumanizes mm. them mm. so uh, as slaves to sin we are not the people we are meant to be mm. and to we actually recover our personhood mm. yeah. we recover our humanity our genuine agency our freedom our dignity as people uh not when we are uh ruling ourselves that's actually the opposite that's slavery mm. um, because that's resisting what i was made to be which mm. is to be a servant of god mm. uh, and so when we enter god's service um, his service is perfect freedom because that's when we're mm. living like we're meant to mm. live mm. and perhaps worth just mentioning again the Son of Man mm. came not to be served, but to serve. Mm. And he is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God because he serves his Father. This mm. is his dignity. This mm. is his mm. glory. Uh, this is why he's the one that we praise. Mm. Amen to that. Peter, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for encouraging me. Uh, thank you for encouraging our listeners. I hope that has been the impact for you. Uh, we serve a wonderful saviour uh, who laid down his life in service for us. And we pray that as a community here at St. Paul's, we would be a community of humble, faithful servants who give ourselves in love for one another. Uh, I think that's the language in our uh, vision at the moment, mission at the moment, that we are captivated by Jesus so that we're boldly reaching sacrificially loving and gladly serving. And mm. I feel like we pick up both of those last two in this discussion, that mm. it's sacrificial in our love and we're glad in our service 
of one another flowing from our service of the Lord. So we're praying that that would be the shape of us as a community uh, and praying that you would enjoy the freedom of serving Christ in that way. Well, that brings us to a bit of a pause in our discussion on Matthew. Uh, Next week, I'll be back with Raj to talk about the Bible and the joy of Bible reading. Uh, Peter, you enjoy a little break before you come back to us with Matthew in a few weeks' time. Uh, What are you going to be reading over the next little stretch? You got anything planned? What am I going to be reading? Well, with everybody else, I'll be reading along with our uh, overflowing series that's coming up, Joy of Bible Reading. But uh, here's a a little sneak plug for you extras listeners. Uh, We are going to have a number of uh, excellent Christian books available through this overflowing series. Uh, Books that pick up on different aspects of Christian living as we think and talk through those here at church. And so uh, my hope is I'm going to be able to get to one of those in the next five weeks. So there's a little plug for you. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, listeners. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. See ya.